Hi, it's John Moe, the host of The Hilarious World of Depression. You might be confused, maybe delighted, to find a new episode in the feed here. Because it has been a while, right? Yeah, hey, how have you been? As you may know, the show known as The Hilarious World of Depression ended over a year ago. But the work of that show, the reason it existed, that continues under a different name. The effort to normalize conversations about mental health continues. The task of telling anyone living with a mental illness that they are not alone and telling a few jokes and even having a bit of fun along the way. Yeah, I have not stopped doing that. I'm just doing it somewhere else. I am the creator of a new weekly show called Depression Mode with John Moe. It's part of the Maximum Fun Network. Depression Mode is not the exact same show as Hilarious World. It's about more than just depression. For one thing, it's about all kinds of mental obstacles. Anxiety, OCD, traumatic stress, eating disorders. And it's a new show every week. We don't really have seasons. There's just a new episode for you every Monday. But you will recognize the tone and the warmth and the humor from Hilarious World. And we have some familiar names on Depression Mode, people that you first heard on Hilarious World. Folks like Peter Sagal, Jenny Lawson, Open Mike Eagle. Plus new voices like Patton Oswalt, The Try Guys, even Ira Glass. We also bring in some top mental health experts, doctors, therapists, researchers, to explain some of the mental health issues in clear, plain language that we can all understand, and with heart. I am very proud of Depression Mode, and it is very easy to subscribe. Just go to wherever you get your podcasts and search on Depression Mode. You'll find it. You can go to MaximumFun.org slash Mode to see more information about our show, check out our archive, and you can go to MaximumFun.org slash join to donate and support the show and keep it going. We really want to keep it going. We're a new show. I started over again from square one, and we could sure use your support. We're going to share an episode of Depression Mode today here in the Hilarious World feed, and it's one that's received a lot of attention since it came out. People have been talking about this, sending it around. It's been written up in magazines, and it's really one of our best episodes. And it gets a little intense. It's with the comedian and writer Joel Kim Booster. So give a listen, and while you do, subscribe to Depression Mode wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. It's Depression Mode. I'm John Moe. I'm glad you're here. Our show's producer, Gabe Mara, brought up the idea of having Joel Kim Booster on the show, and I thought that sounded great. I had seen Joel on this NBC sitcom called Sunnyside, and he was amazing. One of those performances that you watch and you think, this goes beyond funny. This is a complete creative event. Something new and amazing is being born here. I knew Joel had done a lot of stand-up and was well-regarded. I watched a few clips of that, hilarious, smart, innovative, and I knew he wrote as well for Billy on the Street and the show The Other Two, brilliant, brilliant shows. He's also the co-host of the very funny Urgent Care podcast with very funny person Mitra Juhari. My only concern was whether Joel had any connection to mental illness, any kind of struggle. 
combing through Google and Joel's Twitter, there were some hints. He mentions bipolar disorder, but he mentions having that well under control. I figured if there wasn't much there, he's obviously a sharp guy. We could talk about the industry or mental health in entertainment or something like that. I didn't know if there would be a lot going on with Joel Kim Booster's mental health until the interview started, and I asked him how he's been doing lately. What a coincidence that we're recording today because I am in the midst of a pretty bad depressive episode right now. Okay. Um, barely, barely getting through today. I mean, I've actually been fairly productive, but I've been, it's been like moving through a fog doing it and it's been like pulling teeth. So I'm really happy to come here and talk about it. Um, but yeah, other than that, I would say the big sort of headlines of the year for me were um, I lost my ability to write. Um, my imagination has left me and is shot, and I lost my dad to COVID. I'm so sorry. So, um, yeah, those are the two big things I'm. I've sort of uh, that have sort of gone hand in hand to bring me to a pretty dark place at the end of this year. So, what's today look like? You, you say this is an episode that that started today, or is this has it been going on for well, a while? It's um no, it's been going. It's been up and down. I would say for the last several weeks. Um, you know, I'm a I'm a party boy, and on the weekends, like when I'm surrounded by my friends, and I'm able to, uh, you know, uh, use some substances to prop myself up. I feel great. I feel fine. I was just in Puerto Vallarta for a week, and it was the best week I've had in a year and a half. And I felt free. I felt most the most like myself. I think I have felt in a year and a half. Um, I fell in love. I came back and it all came sort of crashing down. And it's, you know, it's a chemical come down, but it's also, you know, a sort of spiritual come down after, you know, a vacation that is that intense and wonderful. And um, it's been, you know, up and down since then. Was it a feeling, was it a trip that kind of uh, kicked off the we're climbing out of this phase of COVID? Yes, absolutely. Okay. It, was the first, it was the first thing that I had really done like that. It was the first time I danced in a group of people. It was the first time I'd, you know, taken my shirt off and been free in a club, um, which is something that I um, was, you know, you could find me doing pre-pandemic for a long time. But um, yeah, it's been, it's been a rough couple of weeks. Yeah. What does a day look like when you're in a cycle like this? How does it start? What happens over the course of a day? Well, um, you know, it's amazing because I have this incredible <sighs> autopilot. And so I have a list of things that I need to get done. And as long as they're not creative, I'm okay. You know, I get up, I go to the gym, I come back, I sit in the shower for upwards of 40 minutes and then I stand in the shower and do the things in the shower you're supposed to do uh get out I feed myself I clean my apartment I take care of admin work I try and tackle one or two projects that I'm supposed to be doing around the house like today I'm I'm clearing out my closet to give away clothes and that's if I if I can accomplish that then I have really done something with my day and I I can feel a little bit better about um, what's going on, but yeah, um, all throughout it, there's this sort of a crushing 
unending dread in the back of my mind while it's happening. Is it focused on anything in particular or just dread as dread? Um, I mean, it definitely is directional. Um, you know, I, I'm worried about my body. I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I was out of the gym for two weeks cause I was sick and I was on vacation and I'm, you know, I have pretty, um, I have pretty, uh, not extreme, but I have, a uh, unrelenting body dysmorphia about how I look. And so there's that, um, there's this guy that I have, you know, met and opened up to for the first time, you know, I don't open up to people I don't date. And so there's anxiety about that. Um, there's anxiety about my career. There's anxiety about, you know, I, I'm done in this business. Um, I don't know that I can, I don't know what the future holds for me as a comedian who can't write a joke. How long has the writing drought been going on? About a year and a half. I haven't written a joke in a year and a half. Before COVID? No. It Just started it since COVID. COVID. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go back a little bit. Let's do a, a quick arc of life. Let's figure out your life in just a few minutes, Joel. You are uh, not originally from LA. You're from the Midwest, correct? Yes, that's correct. Where in the Midwest? Right outside Chicago. What was mental health growing up? Like, what were your experiences with it? What was your understanding of it? Um, you know, I grew up in a really religious household, and so we weren't really somebody, we weren't people who talked about mental health in terms of um, sort of psychological mental health. It was all about spiritual health. So if you're feeling down, it was about, you know, the spirit and, you know, where your relationship was at with God. Um, you know, I'm bipolar and in looking back at a lot of my experiences growing up, that was, that manifested a ton and my parents didn't know how to handle it and they certainly didn't want to medicate me. They certainly didn't send me to any reputable therapists or psychologists. It was all Christian therapy and it was all prayer and um, none of that worked and it was extremely damaging. Bipolar one, bipolar two? Uh, bipolar one. Okay. Did you share your family's belief in religion, but just found it at odds with your brain? Um, you know, up until a point, up until basically I came out. Um, and then, you know, that was at, completely at odds fundamentally with everything um, top to bottom that uh, I was raised to believe. So that's really when I started to, I sort of full tilt left the church and left the religion. And it took a while for me to not believe that I was going to hell. When was the bipolar diagnosis? Um, not until 2019. Okay, so fairly recent. Um, when did you realize, uh, when did you realize you were gay? Four. Four, okay. Um, so when you came out, was it, a, was it a surprise breaking the news or did everybody already know? I mean, listen, I am, I don't, you know, I was, I was called a faggot like from a very young age. And to me, that means like, you just can't hide it. You know, they, people knew that about me before I knew that about me. And so I don't know if people were surprised, um, but it was definitely a, it's, it was definitely a tumultuous experience for my family. I ended up moving out when I was 17. Um, I didn't talk to my family for a year. Um, and you know, it was just, um, 
It was a bad situation. Before we get to the bipolar, I guess, what, when did what you now know as a, a depressive disorder, as a, as a clinical depression, start factoring into your life? Oh, you know, what's funny is that um, my bipolar manifests as mania more so than depression. Oh, okay. I rarely so ever a, felt depressed uh, until oh, the pandemic. Wow. Um, depression is a relatively new addition to my life. A new development. Um, okay. Yeah. W- when did the mania start then? Um, pretty young. Pretty Like when I was a teenager, mm-hmm. um, it would manifest in, you know, I would get, I would stay up all night doing homework and I would, you know, and then I would just like a hair trigger, like be just have these meltdowns um, that were unexplainable. And and my parents called them tantrums. But at 17, 16, like, it's not just a tantrum. It was something uncontrollable in me. Um, That was really um, hard to articulate to anybody, you know. This is all really hard to talk about, by the way. And um, yeah. Okay. If I cross a line, if I go somewhere you don't want to go, just let me know and I'll, I'll back away from it. Yeah. I just thought this would be funnier. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm trying to get the, I'm trying to get the story. Um, when you were in a mania, did you recognize it as, you know, cause I've heard some people say they thought this was just living their best life. They were getting all this stuff done. They were, you know, they were, entertaining and amusing. They were talking a mile a minute, so everybody must love that. They thought it was really great. Was that what it was for you? Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's that until it's until it becomes uncontrollable um, rage and tears and destroying a hotel room and, you know, not being able to control your emotions and screaming at, at anybody who is around to, you know, withstand the wrath of it. I've written some of my best jokes during ma- manic episodes. And I miss really? the manic episodes. I I often wonder if that's why I can't write anymore is because I am cut off from that. Are you cut off from it through through medication, through counseling? Yeah, medication. Okay. Um I mean it is it's funny. I we we've never met. I I know your work. I know your stand up. I really liked Sunnyside a lot, Thank um, you. and I was a big fan of the other two as well. And um, and I on almost a, quit Sunnyside a week before we started shooting because of a manic episode. Really? Yeah. Um. What happened with that? It just. Um, it, it is, it's unexplainable. Um, something happened, um, a scheduling conflict came up and I couldn't handle it. And mm. I had a complete mental breakdown and said, if I can't make this work, then I will quit. And nobody understood. Nobody, it was just like, I had to leave a vacation a day early to get back for a table read. And I said, I can't fathom doing that. Mm. So I quit. This, this huge opportunity. And of course, like, you know, my manager intervened and, you know, talked me down and I got stabilized. But it was um, one of the bigger breaking points of my life where I was like, okay, this is a big problem. Coming up, Joel Kim Booster develops a character to play on stage, Confident Hot Guy. 
not himself, but a version of himself, and it gets complicated. Back with Joel Kim Booster, I will say it wasn't a comfortable interview. Joel was perfectly nice, he was polite, but he wasn't in a good place. I want to point out that we did very little editing with this interview. The pauses, the ums and uhs, me fumbling around, we tried to leave most of that in. When did the comedy interest, the inkling, the the displays of talent, like when did that start showing up in your life? When did you kind of latch on to, to comedy? Um, you know, growing up as a gay-coded kid, you learn to either hide or you learn to become the class clown. And mm. I chose that route. And so that was when I started to try and make people laugh and it was, was effective. I wanted to be an actor um, after college, a writer and an actor. And I moved to Chicago to do that. And it just um, sort of fell into my lap. I didn't, I didn't like the parts I was being called in for as an Asian person. And, um, you know, I tell this story often is, is, you know, I just started doing stand up as a lark, not thinking that it would, it was, would ever be something that I could do on a large scale, but um, just as like an outlet to like finally feel like I was being represented my authentic, like an authentic version of myself was being re- represented by the part, by, by art, you know, like it was so frustrating to like get called in to be a Chinese food delivery boy over and over and over again. So I, um, turned to stand up. Um, and your stand up, I, I've seen it described as a, as a character that you're playing. Um, it seems to me more like just a, a, a part of who you are as sort of the... Yeah, it's a heightened version of myself, for sure. Right. The the kind of confident hot guy. Yeah. Yeah. How did that, how did that come to be the voice that you did comedy in? Um, I think, you know, early in my career, and I think this was just like what everybody was doing, is it's, it's um, comedy is about self-deprecation. My comedy was about self-deprecation and... You know, like, oh, I'm so ugly, I can't get a date. You know, I'm so pathetic and stupid and blah, 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 blah. And um, it really had an effect on my self-esteem in a big way. And also I I realized, especially as I started to gain a little bit more notoriety and success, like, you know, I'm an Asian person, I'm an Asian man. And I think so often we are put in this position to be the clown, to supplement ourselves, to white audiences and play that part of, of like the pathetic clown. And that works for some people and that may feel authentic to some people. But to me, I was like, it's been done. And that's not really how I want to feel about myself. And um, it felt like a different sort of route to go. It felt like a challenge. It's way harder to go out on stage and say, I'm hot and awesome, now laugh at my jokes, than mm-hmm. going out on stage and saying, oh, aren't I so pathetic, now please laugh at my jokes. You know, it's like going out there and demanding people laugh at you is way harder to get them on your side. Um, and so it was an interesting challenge for me to try and, and attempt. It's kind of a, it's a character or it's, a, it's, a, it's an approach 
that does have some precedent to it, though. Like, I think of Steve Martin going out there as, as the kind of – he had kind of an arrogance about him, but he invited you to laugh at his arrogance yeah. at the same time. Yeah. I mean, was uh, – do, do, do audiences or have audiences seen through it and kind of get get the wink if there is a yeah, wink that you're doing? Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, it wouldn't work, I don't think, to the extent that I do it, if people believed it. You know, I'm still an Asian man. I'm still an effeminate Asian man. And so I think people laugh because they don't believe it. When I say I'm hot and powerful, they say, no, you're not. Um, and so they're able to laugh at it because there is a difference there. Um, and I'm okay with that um, because I believe it. So... Yeah, that's that's surprising to me um, because it, it's, I mean, it's a character, but it's a convincing portrayal. Um, I mean, maybe I'm maybe I'm underestimating uh, anti Asian bigotry, but it, it seems plausible to me. Like you know, good looking, confident guy. I've seen those before. Do you think it's it's the Asian quality that makes audiences in general like? I don't know. Like, how does I guess how does the anti Asian discrimination factor into that idea of that audiences don't believe that you're powerful? I think it knocks them off balance a little bit. They don't expect it from me, um, and they they I think because they're used to seeing people apologize on stage for it, and um, it knocks them off balance. And whether or not they believe it or not, I don't know. The jokes work. Um, but I think um, I think what what also helps is that I play up being an idiot too, you know, and that I think is is helpful because they're like, oh, this guy's just an idiot, um, and so it's okay to laugh. He's not. He doesn't. He thinks he's better than us, but that's because he's an idiot. Mm. Is is comedy a refuge? Is acting a refuge? Are are any of these things uh, a break from the struggles that you have? Yeah, I would say stand-up when I'm on stage feels great. I mean, it it definitely is the most self-realized. It's the best thing I'm... It's, it's what I'm best at out of acting, writing, all of it. Stand-up, being on stage, it's, it's what I'm best at. And it's why it hurts so bad to not be good at it anymore. Are you doing shows again? Are you doing yeah, live shows? I'm touring right now. Touring on the hour that... Um, will eventually be a special and um, that I is all material that I wrote pre-pandemic and it feels great because it all works. It's all good material. But, you know, I'm looking ahead and I don't have anything beyond that. Okay. I, I, I'm staying with you here because even though I think there's a there's a lens of the the depression that you're looking at this through, um, but I don't I don't get the connection between you knowing that it it feels great to be out there. You're doing this material, um, and thinking that you're not good at it anymore. Like if you're out there and it's going great, how can you not be good at it? Because um, I'm not generating new material. You know, I'm I'm. I'm basically being an actor right now. I'm I'm performing old material that I wrote when I was good at writing stand up. And and that feels good. But in the back of my mind I know like 
you can't riff. You can't, you know, you're not, you're not trying new jokes. You're not, you have no observations left about the world. You're done. But you've been, you've been in the pandemic since there. Like if you haven't been in the world, what's there to observe about the world? I mean, you know, it's been a couple of months I've been vaccinated and out in the world and um, it's not coming back. My thing is, is like, things don't remind me of other things anymore. And that's the bedrock of my comedy. You know, like, I, you know, uh, I feel like I'm in love and I have nothing interesting to say about it. Nothing funny. No observations about it at all. And that's wild to me. Like this new experience in my life and I have nothing to say about it. That's scary. That sucks. And and the depression is new. This this didn't exist pre-pandemic, correct? No. Okay. Not to this magnitude. I mean, I'd get sad sometimes, but you know, it was nothing nothing that would keep me from writing. Um, what are you doing to address it? Uh, you know, therapy, medication, that the whole that whole shit. Sounds like it's not going great on that front. No, nothing works. This is who yeah. I am now. Yeah, yeah. What do you? What's your plan? I have no plan. Okay. I just ride out, you know, until people start to catch on, and then I can still act. You know, that's easy. Acting is the easiest thing in the world, and hopefully, I'll be able to continue to get work that way. But beyond that, I don't know. Are you um, are you working on like writing projects, but are just stalled on them, or are you just not working on them at all? Um, you know, I have a movie that I'm shooting that I wrote. Um, I'm taking out a show. I wrote one of the best scripts I've ever written at the very beginning of of the pandemic. I think during a manic episode, um, trying to sell that. But if they asked me to write an episode two, I couldn't do it. Hmm. Have you talked with? Other people who have been in this situation, similar situations? Yeah, everybody says, oh, yeah, my, creative, my creativity is shot. But yet I, they're still turning out new jokes. They're still turning out new videos. They're still tweeting through it. It's not yeah. the same. I'm a yeah. blank. Do you think it's permanent? Yeah. How do you know? Um, because I have no reason to believe it's not. Okay. But if it came on during the pandemic and the pandemic is over. Yeah, for all intents and purposes, the pandemic has been over for me since February. And it's June now and nothing's changed. How much of your dad do you think is in this? Um, it's... um. It's hard to suss that out, you know? Um, it's another situation where I can't believe I have nothing to say. Um, it's just grief. It's just a, it's just grief. And um, it used to be when I would experience something like that, I could write a joke about it. I could write something about it. I could process it through writing and I have not been able to process anything. Um, he's just gone. And were you, were you close 
No. We got closer in the final years. We were sort of at an impasse. I mean, he's a very conservative man. Um, um, you know, it's our relationship was probably as good as it has ever been right before he passed. Um, you know, and it just... Um, there's a lot of big things coming for me and I, it just sucks that he won't be able to see them. And, you know, he never approved of what I did for a living. I don't think he, he never saw Sunnyside. He never see, he's never seen any of my stand up. but like, you know, I might buy a house this year and that's something that like he would have been really, really excited about and he won't get to experience that now. And you know, we were finding little ways to connect. I was starting to garden. He's a farmer and has a huge garden. And that was something we were connecting about. And now he's just gone. What about the things that that you think he might have been really excited about? Like, you're in a position where you can recognize those things as exciting. Um, are they exciting to you? Yeah, sure. I mean, it just, um, I've never felt so blank in my entire life. Yeah. Um, I don't understand what yes, yeah, sure means. Are you, is that you you are excited about those things on or paper, not really? I can, I can recognize things on paper as like being exciting. I understand that that is the human emotion that coincides with this event, X event. Mm -hmm. But in terms of really feeling it, I feel nothing. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm looking for, uh, <laughs> for, for ways to make this interview not dark in case that's what you want it to be. Um, but I also feel like I need to kind of honor the reality of the situation you're in. Like if I'm talking to Joel on this day, this is who, this is who Joel was on this day. Yeah. I'm really sorry for being such a fucking downer on the depression podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm the one running a depression podcast, so it's, yeah. it's fine with me. More with Joel Kim Booster, including where he goes from here. That's coming up in just a moment. Um, do you, uh, how is it for you to, to watch funny things now, to watch funny shows or stand up or, or uh, stuff like that? Nothing but jealousy. Really? Nothing but jealousy. And just not, not in terms of the success of it, but just like, God, I wish I could do that again. Yeah. Um, wh why is your Twitter handle, I hate Joel Kim? <laughs> Oh, I just thought it was funny in 2011 or whenever I created it. Thought okay. I'd get in before the haters. <laughs> yeah. It makes Do people you, laugh. It, it, well, it's funny. Do you hate Joel Kim? No. Um, I don't think so. Okay. You like yourself right now? Um, I'm frustrated with myself right now, but I don't hate myself. 
I don't think there's anything to be gained from feeling that emotion. Yeah. Um, what happened after that Puerto Vallarta trip? Like, what was the... You came home, um, and it sounds like it was a wonderful trip. What fell apart after that trip? Uh, well, I mean, I was doing hella drugs on that trip. <laughs> okay. Um, so there's just like a chemical come down that, that happens yeah. naturally. I was also very sick. I was also away from this guy. Um, and, you know, I, um, yeah, that's basically it. I mean, I made it through the week. I pushed through and I got shit done and I, you know, did what needed to be done. And, um, there were high points and low points, but it's just another week, man. Was it a work trip? Was it professional or was it just all vacation? Just vacation. Okay. Okay. Um, is the, you know, we're, we're talking on zoom right now and I'm seeing your apartment. Um, is the apartment a place that you associate with the depression since COVID? Yeah. I imagine you've been there since COVID. I hate this place. Yeah. I moved in mm, four months before the pandemic and I've grown to hate it deeply. I used to love it. Um, but I, I hate it now. Yeah. Um, because of associations that you make with it. Yeah. It, it represents the darkest period of my entire life. Yeah. And my bed is up against the wall. It's impossible to make. And there's no other way to orient the room. It's too small. Yeah. Um, are you going to move? Yeah. Um, but I want to buy a house. So I'm waiting until I'm financially you know, able to do that, which hopefully will happen by the end of the year. But we'll see. Um, has... I want to ask you again about the, uh, the, the refuge of, of doing this kind of stuff. Um, because we talked a little bit about the, the stand-up portion, but we haven't talked about the acting portion. Um, were you a theater kid growing up? Oh yeah. Big time. Musical theater. And yeah, all kinds, all kinds. Okay. Um, was it cause I, I asked because I was I was that kid too before I got into any kind of radio. It was, it was all theater, and um, as a depressed kid uh, who didn't understand depression, it felt less. It didn't feel like escapism to me because I knew I wasn't these people, but it just felt like a pause. I was able to kind of hit pause and and live in a different world where I knew what I was going to say and I knew what everybody else was going to say and I understood all the relationships that were going on. Um, has that been your experience where it's maybe not like a total expression of who you are, but it's a place to hide out for a while? Yeah, it's so easy. It's just so easy because I don't have to be creative. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just have to say the words and acting comes very easy to me. Um, and it feels like such a relief to go on set and just say the lines, be funny in that way. That's, mm -hmm. the, that's the one way I can still be funny is, is through acting. And, um, you know, it just feels like a relief. It, it feels like um, I'm hiding. Mm. Hiding from? From the reality of my situation, which is that I lost it. Whatever I had, I lost it. You lost the ability to generate laughs? Yeah. 
Gen- right material. Okay. Um, I mean, there's there's a fair number of people in Los Angeles who would be very content with that, who, who see themselves as actors, who don't yeah. need to write scripts and don't need to, to do other things, and, and, and who see acting as a creative act. Like if they're, if they're doing a performance, it's getting laughs, they are generating laughs in that way. Sure. Um, you don't see that as possible for yourself? No, I do. I, and I don't mean to shit on acting. It is a creative act for sure. But um, the thing that made me really special is gone. The thing that has always made me really special is gone from my life. Um, and that was writing. For as long as I can remember, I was writing. And I wrote. And it, it was the thing. You know, I'm a good actor, but I was a great writer. And... Um, it really is devastating to know that that has gone from your life. It's like I've been lobotomized and part of my brain is missing. Do you think this is um, environmental, like circumstantial to, to the pandemic, to your, your father's death? Or do you think there is a chemical change that has happened in you? Little column A, little column B, probably. Yeah. Who's to say? Well, the medical community. Like, if if, uh, if it could be determined where this is coming from, if it's if it can be a tweak in medication or a tweak in the approach to the therapy. There's a hundred different types of therapy. Um, do you have the will to search for the to to um, you know ran, run some flags up the flagpole or you know? kind of play around with it and see if you can find a combination. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying different things right now as we speak. I'm reading all the self-help books. I'm doing all the alternative therapies. I'm lighting candles to create creative spaces. I'm doing all the bullshit. (laughs) But it's all bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um. What do you think it's going to be like in five years? Um, I'll be one of those people who used to be a stand-up, but is now mostly just on TV. That's the, that is like the best case scenario for me right now. Who had one good special come out and then never again stopped touring. Maybe did one tour, bad jokes, People laugh because of the fumes that I'm running off of the last special. But um, I don't think anything big was going to happen for me. I, I'm not going to, you know, there was a point in my life and my career where I thought I was like going to be where I never wanted to stop doing stand up. And that's still true. I never want to stop doing stand up. It's just I can't do it anymore. So I just, I thought I would be one of those people who would be, you know, around for a long time and now i think you know i'll get this next special out and um retire and hopefully get some acting gigs and be able to retire for real how do you go about working on a special uh and and doing the creative work that goes into a special in a circumstance like this well it's it's already done 
Oh, you've already taped it. No. Um, oh. The hour that I've been touring on, that I was touring on in 2019, I sold. And I'm just, you know, fine-tuning that, basically just getting the reps in at this point, um, not really changing anything about it. Mm. Um, and that'll be the special. And when do you tape that? Um, probably sometime in the fall. It's okay. a little up in the air right now with COVID. You excited about that? Mm, yeah, sure. Okay. Um, I feel compelled to ask. I feel I'm, it'd be irresponsible not to. Are you safe? What do you mean? Uh, are you inclined to hurt yourself? No. Okay. Has that ever been an issue for you? Hmm. Not since I was a teenager and only for attention. Okay. You weren't seriously. No, I'm way too afraid of dying. Okay. Okay. It's so funny because I listened to this most recent urgent care episode and the guy I'm talking to and the guy I heard just seemed like very different guys. And I don't yeah, think it was well, taped all that long ago. I was, I'm working at a really high level to be that guy. Okay. I'm really, I'm really honored that I got to talk to this guy actually to find out, to find out how you're doing. Yeah. Well, lucky you. <laughs> lucky me. Um, okay. Um, I don't think I have any other questions, but I, I, I really do appreciate the time that you spent on this. And well, I'm sorry to be such a fucking downer the whole time, but you know, Joel, here's the thing. People are going to listen to this, and uh, one complaint that I've got consistently from people is you talk to these people who've struggled before, and now they're doing great. And, you know, I, this is an audience saying it, like, I'm not doing great. And that makes me feel like I'm fucking up, because everybody else seems to have turned the corner, and now they're high on life, and everything's going great. And... I, an audience member, still feel like shit. That's why I'm listening to your fucking show. And so I think this is going to help people to hear from, from someone who isn't doing great. Well, I hope that's, I hope that's true. Deeply, I do. Um, because it is um, a lot of work to, can, to appear normal. And this has been nice to just be a fucking blob of flat emotion mm -hmm. i've um in in preparation for this i've i've been watching some of your stand-up and you know the, the sets that you did on james corden and conan some of these other places and for me it was it was another side of you i hadn't i wasn't as familiar with your your stand-up as your acting um but i just finished search party my, my wife and i watched search party and you were so delightful on that that I want you to know that you brought joy and you've brought joy on several occasions into my house. Um, my daughter and I watched, uh, watched Sunnyside. It was our show. And, oh. and, you know, sure. Like, like everybody else, I sure wish it had gone on longer, but, um, but it, it provided like the the acting that you did provided a lot of joy and and i'm i'm well, that makes me great that makes that. me feel really good to hear i do appreciate that 
Yeah, you help people. Um, and, and I wish you well, and I want you to keep on trying lots of different things, uh, lots of different therapists. How's your therapist? Are they okay? They're fine. She's good. She's good? Yeah, I've been okay. with her for a minute. I don't know how much it helps, but she's good. Okay. Well, I want you to, to try a lot of things and, uh, you know, and I, I want you to, to recognize, um, the, the power and goodness that you have. All right. I'll do my best. So that's Joel Kim Booster. Google him. Search for him on YouTube. You'll find all kinds of funny stand-up clips. I remain a fan of Joel Kim Booster's comedy. I have become a fan of Joel Kim Booster, the human being, as a result of this conversation. He says he's not creative, but I think he created something amazing just now. Depression, as we know, is a hard thing to describe. It's difficult to articulate just what it is to be in a deep, depressive episode. I've never heard or read or, I think, written anything that really covers the expansive, exhausting swamp of depression. I think the best anyone can do is talk about what life is under the weight of this illness. And I think Joel did that beautifully. And now, when someone asks me what depression is like, I can say, well, I can't quite describe it to you in words, but I did this one interview you might find helpful. I'll send them a link to this episode. There's another thing on my mind that I wanted to just take a minute to recognize. At some point in the interview, I stepped away from the idea of gathering information. I went more into the territory of trying to help Joel, of expressing concern. I wasn't really following the rules of interviewing in the classical sense. I was breaking them. And I felt kind of weird about it afterwards because it's like I I wasn't doing my job. And if you thought that too, believe me, I get it. I try to be as much in the moment as possible during the interviews. I try to have very few plans or expectations as to where the conversation will go. I try to just be there. And I think that's why I dropped the idea of an objective, disengaged interviewer. And in this one especially, I just became a human, listening to another human who's suffering. And the urge to help overwhelmed me. And I tried to help even though I know you can't reason someone out of depression. You can't point to reasons to feel better because depression is not based in reason. It's not a response to a single thing. It doesn't respond to logic. It's an all-encompassing mood disorder. I know that about depression. I've been doing this for years. I literally wrote the book on depression. Well, I wrote a book on depression. Look, I'm not trying to make this all about me. I'm really not. And I'm not trying to beat myself up either. I'm just saying all this because I believe there is hope in the compulsion to try to help someone. That urge, that basic root benevolence, and I think you would have done the same in my position, that is more than politeness. It's an instinct. We want to lift each other up when we've fallen. And if that instinct to help is there, I have faith, faith being belief without proof, I have faith that there's an instinct also to seek help 
and receive help and take it in. My friend Anna Marie Cox says that hope isn't always something you can wait to have delivered to you. Sometimes you got to go out and find it. And sometimes it's hard to find. And you got to go look for it anyway. Next time on Depression Mode, we all have brains. We would all like to be as healthy as possible. So why is talking about mental health so dang difficult? When you just name a thing and say, like, depression is an experience that I know intimately. Like, how about you? Then it's like, oh, we're allowed to talk about that. We don't have to hide and pretend like it's not happening. When you acknowledge and invite in that kind of questions about that that's part of the plot of all of our lives, you can sort of be like, oh, okay, we're going to actually admit that that's happening. Okay. A pleasant talk about difficult things with Anna Sale, host of Death, Sex, and Money. We love it when you recommend Depression Mode to friends. It might help them. Also, something that matters a lot, hit subscribe, give us five stars, write reviews. That helps more people find out about the show, which helps our mission of getting those conversations happening. I want you to know that the Suicide Prevention Lifeline is available 24-7 for free at 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-TALK. The Crisis Text Line, also free, always available. Text the word HOME to 741-741. Depression Mode is your show, too. Let us know who you want me to interview, what issues you want to hear more about. We take requests. Email us at our electric mail address. It's depressionmode at maximumfun.org. Along the same lines, Depression Mode can only help people, can only entertain, can only exist with the support of listeners. Thank you to those who have joined. Become members. If you haven't, join us. It's easy to throw in a few bucks to keep this thing going. MaximumFun.org slash join. If you're on Facebook, look up our mental health discussion group, Preshies. Great talk going on over there. I like to stop by sometimes. Join in the chat. We're on Twitter and Instagram at DepressPod. Our Depression Mode newsletter is available on Substack. I'm on Twitter at John Moe. Hello, Credits listeners. Bonehouse wasps not only hunt and kill and eat spiders, they line the walls of their nests with dead ants. And they should stop because it weirds me out. Depression Mode is produced by Gabe Mara. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. Rhett Miller wrote and performed our theme song, Building Wings. I'm always falling off of cliffs now Building wings on the way I am figuring things out Building wings, building wings, building wings No one knows the reason Maybe there's no reason I just keep believing No one knows the answer Maybe there's no answer I just keep on dancing I'm Mary from Maine And I want you to know You are worthy, just as you are. Depression Mode is a production of Maximum Fun. I'm John Moe. Bye now. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.